The fairy folk of Celtic tradition have been pictured in many ways over the years. To the Victorians and Edwardians, they were often imagined as friendly, human-like and playful. Just think of the popular imagery that inspired the look of the famous 1917 Cottingley fairy hoax. But the creator who most convincingly presented us with a darker and more sinister version of these ab-human creatures was the Welsh writer Arthur Mackin. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, we investigate tales of monsters, hauntings, fringe beliefs, and weird fiction. We're critical, not cynical, here at the Cabin, and we love nothing more than a bit of Victorian-era pseudoscience, pseudo-folklore, and even pseudo-ethnology. And in this episode, focusing on Arthur Mackin's 1895 story, The Novel of the Black Seal. Well, we should be able to provide all of this, and quite a bit more. There will be links to H.P. Lovecraft, Margaret Murray, The Witch Cult Hypothesis, Celtic Mythology, and hopefully a whole lot more. Joining me for this episode is a fine can of Howling Gale Ale from 8 Degrees Brewing, made in Mitchellstown in County Cork. Grab yourself a brew, join me at the cabin, and get ready for this episode, Evil Fairy Folk, Arthur Mackin's novel of the Black Seal. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Well, folks, you are welcome to the cabin and you are welcome to this episode. As always, you find me in the middle of October, in the middle of my sort of spooky, weird fiction October rush of episodes. It's getting a little bit darker these days, early, it's getting a little colder. I actually have the fire on for the first time this year, so you might hear a little bit of sound in the background. Hopefully that just makes it all the cosier. October, of course, is a good time for spooky stories. Hopefully you've enjoyed some of our recent episodes about classic writers of the strange and the uncanny. We have an episode recently about Dennis Wheatley, The Devil Rides Out. We had an episode about H.P. Lovecraft, um, all that sort of good stuff. And now we're going to talk about another great man of spooky writing, and that is, of course, the Welshman Arthur Mackin. As always, if you like the show, folks, you can absolutely help out. We love reviews. We will absolutely read them out. Uh, We like people to subscribe and we like people to get in touch as well. So find us on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. We're always very happy to share pictures of people chatting with us. If you have an idea for a show, if you have a politely worded correction, we always like those as well. And we have merchandise as well, as we've been talking about recently. We have mugs, t-shirts. We've had some great uh, photographs sent in from places far afield in the UK, in America, in Canada, and right here in County Cork as well. So that's lovely. Please keep those coming in. And um, yeah, if you have a picture of yourself donning our sexy t-shirt or drinking from our sexy mug, uh, we will be very happy to share that too. Okay, let's get to the point here. Arthur Mackin, a very important and fundamental weird fiction writer from the turn of the 20th century. Honestly, I don't know as much about him as I do about H.P. Lovecraft or Dennis Wheatley, both of whom we had episodes about recently. And and I'll put my cards on the table. This is the beginning of a new journey for me and learning about Arthur Mackin. He is perhaps cited more often than he has read, in my experience anyway. A lot of writers who are still very popular today will mention him as being an influence, Lovecraft chiefly among them. But I don't see him 
very often um, in print as much as perhaps I should or as I would like and I certainly didn't have access to him when I was younger he I didn't find him in collections of weird short stories that I used to like to read and I think he's probably having a bit of a renaissance in the last 10 or 20 years his high point seemed to have been he had a brief period of um let's say in in infamy infamy in the 1890s when he wrote some books that were considered shocking at the time he got a bit of a bit of a boost then during the first world war and that's kind of like the main thing i knew about him for years which was that he wrote a short story during the war called the bowmen which inadvertently inspired like the most famous urban legend of the first world war which is of course the story of the angels of mons which i have a book about here and when i'm done with it i might write a little bit more I might record a little bit more about Arthur Macken when I'm done with that book at the moment a lot of my information is coming from the lovely Ghostland by Edward Parnell which if you're listening to this you probably are aware of and if you probably swim in some of the same circles you'll know this book came out last year but in hardback it's just out in soft cover at the moment and it's a lovely book about psychogeography and hauntology and mostly about the sort of weird fiction of Britain and kind of weird occult connections there's a lot of folk horror in there he talks about the wicker man he talks about M.R. James but there's a my book only came this morning and I was delighted to find out there is a chapter about Arthur Macken so I gave it a breeze through before recording just to try and get up as far as I can on the life of the man himself before I talk about his novel uh, the or his short story which is misleadingly called the novel of the black seal but yeah, I'm just putting it out there that I'm not as up on his life as I was with some of those other authors, but this is something I'm learning more about. I have read The Great God Pan, which is probably still his most famous work, but I'm not going to talk about that today. We're talking about The Black Seal. So, small bit of um, biographical stuff. This is from the the website of his hometown in Wales called Curlian. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, Welsh is extremely different to Irish. It's a different branch of Celtic language and the linguistic tree and I don't the pronunciations don't come easily to me I once lived for a month um, in Bettisi Coed in Snowdonia and I once worked for a month in near Pembroke but apart from that my knowledge of Wales and, and Welsh and Welsh culture is not amazing so huge apologies to anyone if I mangle some of the pronunciation here but from his hometown's website uh, carolian.org they write Mackin's life and writing reflect a deep commitment to the Orthodox Anglo-Catholic faith and his books frequently explore aspects of the old religion and the Celtic church. Mackin's interest in spirituality was broader than that of a formal, regular church goer as he sought to examine the often alarmingly close world beyond the veil which manifests itself to those who are prepared and open to deep experiences of a psychic nature. An enjoyment of wine and tobacco was felt to be one way of entering this state of consciousness. So that's lovely. A lot of things here you ought to recognise if you're a fan of the show. Quite a lot of these um, writers of the strange from this period tended to be churchmen and their church outlook tended to influence their weird writing. Now, Mackin is always cited as being a powerful influence on Lovecraft. I know my previous guest... Uh, w. Scott Poole um, likes to emphasize other influences on on Lovecraft and wrote in his in his biography that perhaps these um, these influences are sometimes overstated and that that 
can be true if you look at exactly what point of his life Lovecraft discovered Mackin and um, quite a lot of his fundamental tropes were already in place when he discovered Mackin which I agree however as we should I think as we'll find investigating the novel of the Black Seal there are still a lot of clear things that he is clearly taking from Mackin and he wrote himself quite a lot about his impressions about the man himself so Let's get to that. Um, the, two, the two writers, of course, are very different. I just want to say quickly that, of course, Lovecraft is famous for his quote-unquote cosmic horror, the idea that the universe itself is so big and scary precisely because it doesn't care about us. The place of mankind in his universe is that we are insignificant and the universe is big and cold and uncaring. And that, I mean, he was an atheist himself and he was not a supernaturalist himself he did believe a few weird things, but mostly about race, as we talked about in our previous episode. Mackin is different, because Mackin is dealing with some proto-Lovecraftian, that's what I'm going to call it, proto-Lovecraftian ideas of the universe and nature, particularly being older and stranger than we can imagine, and being kind of fundamentally hostile to us. But he himself was always a committed Christian his whole life, and therefore his own worldview would have been a little different he would not have seen the universe as being cold and uncaring in the way that Lovecraft did, at least in his private life. So that's a, a particular lens through which I'm going to try and interpret this this short story. Now, Lovecraft is great partly because he wrote extensively about his influences and the writers who he admired. And it's it's if you're a fan of him, you'll know that he had a great essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature, where he basically lays out all of the influences and his whole ideas about the history of, of horror writing. And it, it still holds up today. It's still very entertaining. Obviously, some of it is very much of its time in terms of literary criticism and other ideas. But really, it, it's a great place to start for getting more ideas and uh, jumping off points for discovering new writers. And that's probably where I first heard about Arthur Mackin back in the day, aside from the Angels and Mons stories. So this is what Lovecraft has to say about Mackin in Supernatural Horror in Literature. He says, Of living creators of cosmic fear raised to its most artistic pitch, few, if any, can hope to equal the versatile Arthur Mackin, author of some dozen tales, long and short, in which the element of hidden horror and brooding fright attain an almost incomparable substance and realistic acuteness. Mr. Mackin, with an impressionable Celtic heritage, linked to keen youthful memories of the wild domed hills, archaic forests, and cryptic Roman ruins of the Gwent countryside, has developed an imaginative life of rare beauty, intensity, and historical background. He has absorbed the medieval mystery of dark woods and ancient customs, and is a champion of the Middle Ages in all things, including the Catholic faith. He has yielded likewise to the spell of the Britano-Roman life, which once surged over his native region, and find strange magic in the fortified camps, tessellated pavements, fragments of statues and kindred things, which tell of the day when class classicism reigned and Latin was the language of the country. Phew, thanks Lovecraft. You did a nice job there of kind of pointing out a number of Mackin's traits, his Celtic background, along with his religious and, and Catholic background. As an Irish person myself, I'm well aware of the particular type of Celtic Christianity and how it has contributed to the sort of altering, but also the perpetuation of various 
old-fashioned pagan folklore, which was was kept alive by monks writing illuminated manuscripts and altering the stories for sure, but also, you know, not not completely wiping them out of the record. It's quite likely that we wouldn't have had the record of those without the the, the particular way that the the Christian Church behaved in Ireland and uh, other Celtic fringes at the time. Hi folks, editing Kean here. Just want to be clear about one thing that I found not clear actually from the sources. A lot of the written stuff about Mackin specifically refers to him as being Catholic. And I even found very large write-ups of him in specifically Catholic publications. Despite the fact that the circumstantial evidence, everything seemed to show that he was in fact Anglican. Uh, upon doing a little more research, it turns out he was, of course, in fact Anglo-Catholic. So I hope that clears that up. As a non-religious person, it absolutely did not clear it up for me. Uh, upon a little research, this is basically a subset of Anglicanism, which incorporates some elements of the old Catholic rituals into their mass. I'm not going to go into it any further than that, but uh, hopefully that clears it up in case I sound a little confused about, about Mackin's religious background during the episode. Thanks. Lovecraft also mentions uh, the Kingdom of Gwent, which was the ancient pre-Roman kingdom in the part of Wales where our boy Arthur Macken was from and how much this fed into his folklore love and his storytelling as well. So <clears throat> one of the interesting things Lovecraft does also is he ascribes some of Arthur Macken's ancient mystery races, these mysterious races with which we share the wild regions of our planet and we'll get to that, Lovecraft describes these races to being the same as the quote-unquote witch cult of Margaret Murray. If that sounds familiar to you, we did an episode about Margaret Murray last year. I'm very proud of it. Please do check it out. Basically, in the 1920s, she was a, a very respected Egyptologist who wrote a book proposing that the actual people who were, you know, hanged and burned and stuff for being witches in the early modern period that this was not some kind of hysteria. This was, in fact, they were the remnants of some kind of pre-Christian pagan cult, which may have survived up until only a few hundred years prior. So Lovecraft was completely consumed by this idea. He bought into it hook, line, and sinker. He absolutely loved the idea, not only that, you know, ancient pre-Christian cults were still going and they were still around us, potentially. He also took on board her other idea that the little people, the, the Dina Sheeha of Celtic mythology, um, may have been some kind of racial memory of an ancient, you know, non-human but hominid, hominoid race that lived alongside us in old times. And uh, perhaps those might even still be with us as well. And Margaret Murray sort of went further down this rabbit hole as her books went on and as she got older. Her, her initial breakout book, uh, the, the Witch Cult in Western Europe, is not quite so kind of intense with this stuff and it hedges its bets a little bit if I recall and sort of implies that well if this stuff was happening it probably wrapped up about 300 years ago but Lovecraft likes the idea that this still might be happening so he didn't believe in out and out supernatural stuff but like I said he did believe some weird stuff about history archaeology and ethnology and he kind of back projects some of this stuff which was being written in the 1910s and 20s he back projects it onto Mackin so Mackin is kind of an ancestor to these ideas as far as Lovecraft thinks and honestly a this is what kind of got me interested in Mackin and doing a deep dive into this particular story the novel of the Black Seal it's not a bad take even for Lovecraft and, and, and some of the weirdness he brings so 
To give you an idea of what we're talking about, Margaret Murray later wrote, and, and, and this, these connections were brought to my attention by an article from a blog called From an Underwood Number 5, which is really, really interesting. It's mostly about Robert E. Howard Lovecraft and Margaret Murray, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But Margaret Murray later wrote, The connection of the witches and fairies opens up a very wide field. At present, it is little more than speculation that the two are identical, but there is promise that the theory may be proved at some later date when the subject is more fully worked out. It is now a commonplace of anthropology that the tales of fairies and elves preserve the tradition of a dwarf race which once inhabited northern and western Europe. Successive invasions drove them to the less fertile parts of each country which they inhabited. Some betook themselves to the inhospitable north or the equally inhospitable mountains. As a conqueror always regards the religion of the conquered as superior to his own in the arts of evil magic, the dwarf race obtained the reputation of wizards and magicians, and their god was identified by the conquerors with the principle of evil. The identification of the witches with the dwarf or fairy race would give us a clear insight into much of the civilization of the early European peoples. Uh, Robert E. Howard famous creator of Conan, also wrote in a short story called Men of the Shadows, the little people spoken of by Macken are supposed to be descendants of the prehistoric people who inhabited Europe before the Celts came down out of the north. They are known variously as Turanians, Picts, Mediterraneans and Garlic Eaters. A race of small, dark people Traces of their type may be found in primitive sections of Europe and Asia today, among the Basques of Spain, the Scotch of Galloway, and the Laps. All over Europe, and especially in Britain, the legend is that these Picts, whom the Celts looked upon as scarcely human, fled to caverns under the earth and lived there, coming out only at night, when they would burn, murder, and carry off children for their bloody rites of worship. Wow. Okay, so if you're familiar with your Celtic, your basic Celtic mythology, you'll be aware of the idea in Celtic folklore that there were once, you know, a group of powerful people in Ireland or Scotland or Britain or whatnot, and um, that they were driven underground and then became less powerful, but they were still to be, you know, to be respected and to be feared some somewhat and to be wary of. So, you, you know, in Ireland, this manifests as the Dina Sheeha, who traditionally live either underground or in some kind of other world which can be accessed occasionally if you're uh, lucky or unlucky through fairy forts and, and various other other methods what lovecraft and howard and, and to some extent margaret murray are doing here is positing that this is based on yeah memory of some actual like dwarf race of people who who they constantly refer to as being mongoloid which is an unfortunate turn of phrase Howard and, and, and Lovecraft, of course, were both obsessed with race and had some kooky ideas about them. Not that that was particularly uncommon at the time, but when it comes to the world of weird fiction, they were certainly more into this than most. I love the idea that they're known as garlic eaters. I, I have no idea where that comes from. This does this, this constant idea that they're dark hair, dark eyed, does make me think of the contemporary idea that certain... Um, you know, certain Irish people owe their ancestry to folks coming over from Iberia in ancient times uh, by boat. And there's this idea that, you know, what we sometimes call the quote-unquote black Irish in old times, which just means Irish people who are not fair-skinned and fair-haired. It means Irish people who have slightly more sallow skin. 
uh, dark eyes or dark hair. Maybe there's some genetics there coming from Iberia, and, you know, that could be part of the story. There's also some ecological rather than archaeological evidence for this, which is there are certain types of mammals which we share with Iberia that we don't share with Britain, meaning that it seems to be more likely that they were brought over by people from Iberia rather than crossing over here from Britain during the Ice Ages. But I'm not an archaeologist. I can't get too much into that. It just it puts it in my mind, makes, makes, makes it interesting to me. So let's get to the story at hand. So the novel of the Black Seal is not actually a novel. It's a short story and it's contained within a book called The Three Imposters, which comes from 1895. It's a strange and complicated book. There are many stories within it. There are there's a bit of an Arabian Nights thing going on with stories within stories. And obviously the Arabian Nights was incredibly influential at this time. Richard Burton had done a translation that was bawdy and scandalous, I think maybe 20 years earlier, something like that. And I'm not going to talk too much about it. It's got unreliable narrators. It's got crisscrossing of stories and themes. It's a bit of a mixed bag. I'm only going to deal with the novel of the Black Seal on its own. In fact, it's so good and so interesting that it was often taken separately from the novel and printed on its own. So it's 1895. We're talking the era of the the decadent novels, the yellow novels, um, kind of almost early modernism in some ways, or at least influential on modernism, depending on your taste. And most of the stories involve these two guys, one of whom is a sort of proto-occult detective and the other who is a more of a rationalist. And as an example of the stories within stories, the Russian doll format, the Arabian Nights format, things kick off with a section called The Adventure of the Missing Brother, which really sounds like a, a Sherlock Holmes story name to me. So we meet one of our two main characters who is called Phillips, and he's a scientist. And uh, Mackin has a pretty scathing description of him and presumably a scathing description of science in general, which is, this is very 1890s decadent to me. He says about Phillips, flattering himself with the title of materialist, he was in truth one of the most credulous of men, but he required a marvel to be neatly draped in the robes of science before he would give it any credit. And the wildest dreams took solid shape to him, if only the nomenclature were severe and irreproachable. He laughed at the witch, but quailed before the powers of the hypnotist, lifting his eyebrows when Christianity was mentioned, but adoring Protile and the ether. For the rest, he prided himself on a boundless scepticism, the average tale of wonder he heard with nothing but contempt. So that is Phillips. He is our sceptical scientist. His counterpart is Dyson, a kind of a recurring character who's a, more of an occultist, who, who tells this guy, While you fancy yourself far in the golden land of new philosophies, you are in reality a dweller in a metaphorical Clapham. To those of us who have, or to those of you who have never lived in London, um, I've, I used to fancy myself as something of a faux Londoner. During my UK days, I lived uh, at different times in adjacent counties and enjoyed travelling in for a weekend of debauchery. Uh, so, yeah, but Dyson is effectively saying here, mate, you think you're out travelling the unknown places of the universe when you, you really haven't gone far away from town, the town that you know. So, Phillips meets up with a mysterious girl sitting on a bench in, I think, Leicester Square, 
and she tells him that she has a brother who has mysteriously disappeared and she saw him once in a crowd in London travelling with a, a man who seemed to be leading him away from her and this guy had a sort of a like a rotting hand like as if his flesh was coming off as if he was already dead and this kind of tale of the this is a link to a, a wider larger story happening within the book as a whole and it doesn't really come up again in the novel of the black seal it's just like a setup she then uh, says do you know professor greg who she portrays as being a hard-headed rationalist and our narrator says yes i do know him in fact he was the the prestigious author of the textbook of ethnology uh, and all he knows about this mysterious professor greg is that uh, he somehow came to some terrible accident and thus begins truly the novel of the black seal in which we learn about this girl whose name is lally she talks about how she was almost she was poor she was starving she was about to die she'd come to london to make her fortune but it wasn't working out and she talks about being on the verge of of starvation and walking the streets of london and we get this wonderfully kind of purpley decadent bit of prose where she says in a confused vision I stumbled on through roads half town and half country, grey fields melting into the cloudy world of mist on one side of me and on the other comfortable villas with a glow of firelight flickering on the walls, but all unreal, red brick walls and lighted windows, vague trees and glimmering country, gas lamps beginning to star the white shadows. So lovely late Victorian pseudo uh, gothic stuff right there. She is rescued from her hard times by the uh, aforementioned scientist Greg, who takes her on board as a governoress, which means she lives in his house and helps to raise his children. And in his house, he has cabinets full of strange, even hideous objects, which is this very much the sort of thing that Lovecraft would later say in his writing. And we get this quote. Um, he says, I confess it, Miss Lally. I covet the renown of Columbus. You will, I hope, see me play the part of an explorer surely i said there is little left to explore you have been born a few hundred years too late for that i think you are wrong he replied there are still depend upon it quaint undiscovered countries and continents of strange extent ah miss lally believe me we stand amidst sacraments and mysteries full of awe and it doth not yet appear what we shall be life believe me is no simple thing no mass of grey matter and conjuries of veins and muscles to be laid naked by the surgeon's knife. Man is the secret which I am about to explore, and before I can discover him, I must cross over weltering seas indeed, and oceans and the mists of many thousand years. So yeah, P Professor Gregg absolutely sees himself as some sort of explorer of science, and it's clear that he thinks he's about to make some um, large new discovery, about which he's a little bit secretive. We learn that he's been collecting stories of mysterious missing children from parts of the countryside. We also learn that he has a photograph of an inscription on limestone rock that he's got from the Welsh Hills. And that this inscription has been seen quite recently. In fact, he traces it to having happened only within the last 15 years. Which is unusual because he also has a 4,000 year old rock seal which bears the same marks. Right, so we're getting here into the sort of Victorian horror of deep time and Darwinism. So I read a great Paris Review article by a fellow by the name of Aaron Worth, who it's taken from basically an annotated book of 
Mac and Short Stories, which I have ordered and I'm hoping to get a hold of. But Worth makes a lot of good points here about the, the, the trauma that was done to Victorian society by their discovery of deep time, pre-Victorian, I suppose, going back to Mary Anning's discoveries of the 1810s and 20s. You know, kind of the simple version is that prior to this, people had a more or less biblical view of things, that the Earth was only so many thousand years old. And now the cracks were starting to show by the beginning of the 19th century. This view of things really didn't explain everything that people knew, but it wasn't until kind of the initial fossil finds of that time and the explanations for it and the advances of geology with people like Hutton and Lyle. That's when this became really sort of, it became something you could no longer ignore. And it became something that people had to deal with and it unseated mankind's place in the universe as being, you know, this this unquestionably central figure put there by God in his own image, all that sort of thing. So as much as he is a Christian, Mackin is, is still dealing with some of these traumas with this material, the idea that there are other races on Earth that predated us, perhaps, and that we are not the only you know, uh, intelligent beings on the scene, as it were. So they make a journey to a place called Kermayan, which I hope I'm saying right, which is clearly supposed to be Mackin's hometown of Caerleon. But he's just changed the he's changed the word slightly. Don't know why. He also does a strange thing where he, he claims that it is, in fact, somewhere in the west of England. Now, I don't know. Mackin later was more obvious that the place names he was using were places in Wales. He's disguising his hometown here a little bit. There's no doubt that it is his hometown because he mentions a number of things which match with it. Primarily the stuff that it was a... It was a major centre for Roman uh, uh, military doings. And the, the, the town today still has quite a lot of leftover Roman remains. I wonder myself if this was some sort of... English versus Welsh thing that at the time, in order to be published in London and be taken seriously, you had this expectation that the the public were more interested in things that were English than were not. I don't know. Maybe that's something that changed over the course of Mackin's own career. But that's just, yeah, just something I noticed, but I, I don't have an answer for. So nevertheless, they travel to this town. Let's say it's somewhere on the border. It's clearly based on a real place in Wales. And the the girl Lally writes, The next morning when I awoke and looked out of the bow window of the big old-fashioned bedroom, I saw, under a grey sky, a country that was still all mystery. The long lovely valley, with the river winding in and out below, crossed in mid-vision by a medieval bridge of vaulted and buttressed stone, the clear presence of the rising ground beyond, and the woods that I had only seen in shadow the night before, seemed tinged with enchantment. And the soft breath of air that sighed in at the opened pane was like no other wind. I looked across the valley, and beyond, hill followed on hill as wave on wave, and here a faint blue pillar of smoke rose still in the morning air from the chimney of an ancient grey farmhouse. There was a rugged height crowned with dark firs, and in the distance I saw the white streak of a road that climbed and vanished into some unimagined country. But the boundary of all was a great wall of mountain, vast in the west and ending like a fortress with a steep ascent. Beautiful. You can you can feel the the, the sort of psychogeography here. Mackin is crafting this landscape, this countryside as a mystical ancient place. You know, 
draped in in folklore and history and deep time and therefore horror and that's something Lovecraft would do a whole lot as well was he would constantly talk about how the the very antiquity of something in itself was was terrifying which always mystified me as a kid because like both he and I you know had no problem like neither Lovecraft nor myself were religious so I had no problem with this concept that you know the the earth was very ancient and yet he continually insists upon the idea that uh, this is the this antiquity is itself somehow terrible it does make more sense to me coming from somebody like like Mackin to you know to whom to whose worldview it might be more of an upset but i really don't know anyway basically the place is weird all right so the very atmosphere of this la- of this landscape is convincing the scientist that he must be on the right track he starts wandering around outside the house where they're staying, looking at the forest and the hills, and just feeling, this place is so strange, I must be on the right track to finding this ancient race. He even goes as far as to say that this is territory, quote, more unknown to Englishmen than the very heart of Africa. And this is incredibly interesting to me, from a sort of a pseudo-colonial point of view, from a kind of British class system point of view, he says very specifically, unknown to Englishmen. They're in Wales. And he's deliberately painting Wales as a place that is not England. It is decisively not England. It is other. It is alien. It is orientalized, if I may even go that far. So the idea that they've left London, which is the capital of the, the empire, the, the bastion of civilization and the modern world, they are now at the Celtic fringes of Britain. They're now in a strange place where anything could happen. And this is in line with classical, you know, 20th century storytelling where you, you know, you Joseph Campbell's stuff where you leave the safe place and you go to the unknown place. And it's really, really interesting to me to see a Welsh writer, you know, through an English character, remaking Wales into this strange, alien, mysterious place. I absolutely love it. In the library in the house, Lally finds a book written by the ancient Romans from their travels. And the book, she says, uh, three books of Pomponius Mela de Situ Orbis and other of the ancient geographers. I knew enough of Latin to steer my way through an ordinary sentence, and I soon became absorbed in the odd mixture of fact and fancy, light shining on a little of the space of the world and beyond mist and shadow and awful forms glancing over the clear printed pages my attention was caught by the heading of a chapter in solanus and i read the words mira de intimis gentibus libiae de lapide i'm not going to try and say that last word sorry folks but it translates as the wonders of the people that inhabit the inner parts of libya and of the stone called sixty stone This folk, I translated to myself, dwells in remote and secret places and celebrates foul mysteries on savage hills. Nothing have they in common with men, save the face, and the customs of humanity are wholly strange to them, and they hate the sun. They hiss rather than speak. Their voices are harsh and not to be heard without fear. They boast of a certain stone which they call Sixty Stone, for they say that it displays sixty characters. And this stone has a secret, unspeakable name, which is Ixaxar. Whew, okay, good stuff there. That was Lally reading the ancient Romans talking about this mystery people who live supposedly in Libya. But, hmm, 
well, what if they don't only live in Libya? So she laughs, she doesn't take this seriously, and quite tellingly she says, oh, it's like something out of the Arabian Nights, which is a super late Victorian thing to say. However, uh, our professor, Professor Greg, is not so pishposhy about all of this. In fact, he makes her take another look at the seal and count the different marks on it, and it turns out there are 60. Ooh, maybe this is the 60 seal. Then Greg gets really weird and mysterious and says, I'm going to go out into the town and hire a young boy to work around the house. And Lally is like, but we don't need another guy around the house. We're fine. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it. Not only that, but, oh, just so you know, I'll probably find a young fellow about 14 with dark hair and eyes and olive skin. And he probably won't be very smart. He'll probably have some intellectual disability. He doesn't say as nicely as that, but there you go. And sure enough, he comes back with exactly this kind of kid. Almost as if, you know, he knew what he was looking for. So the kid is, right, does this ring any bells? He's got dark hair, dark eyes, olive skin. And he has a, quote, a harsh voice that caught my attention. It gave me the impression of someone speaking deep below under the earth. And there was a strange sibilance, like the hissing of the phonograph as the pointer travels over the cylinder. Nice. So this kid, it turns out, has a strange background. Before he was born, his mother, as a young woman, was lost and then found, you know, lying and crying in the hills, in the woods of a place called the Grey Hills nearby. And she was out of her mind for many, many weeks and was found spouting crazy languages and took quite a long time to come back to being herself. As Lally is learning about all of this, she has some distinctly pre-Lovecraftian thoughts. She says, I began to dread, vainly proposing to myself, the iterated dogmas of science that all life is material, and that in the system of things there is no undiscovered land, even beyond the remotest stars, where the supernatural can find a footing. Yet there struck in on this the thought that matter is as really awful and unknown as spirit, that science itself but dallies on the threshold, scarcely gaining more than a glimpse of the wonders of the inner place. So, next up, the boy has a fit, and Lally finds him shaking uncontrollably and speaking in some crazy language. And she says, surely this is the very speech of hell. Interesting. As I've mentioned before, I think most recently on the Dennis Wheatley episode, this is an example of, you know, stuff that's pagan and stuff that's satanic just kind of being treated as as being the same thing. It's interesting that Mackin would choose to do that, being as he knew quite a lot about paganism, but he also was very Christian. I, I don't know that he equated the two literally. In fact, the story seems to imply not, and other things I've read by him seem to imply that he didn't. But the two are inextricably linked in Christian and post-Christian culture just because Christianity has always fashioned its demons using elements of uh, other faiths that they were were not interested in promoting, shall we say. Hence the idea of the devil having horns and, and being associated with goats and rams and uh, animals that were frequently worshipped by the pre-Christian pagans all around Europe. And also why these this kind of imagery was to come back at about this time when Margaret Murray and people like that were starting to say, no, maybe, you know, maybe these these people were an actual nature religion or a fertility cult and, and they naturally would worship these animals and, and see their gods. I mean, she called it the horned god, 
what was the, the figure who she thought they worshipped. So, yeah, I mean, all of this stuff is coming up at around the same time. Obviously, she wasn't writing that when Macken was writing, but they're drawing from some of the same uh, background, perhaps. I mean, this is only about five years, I think, after The Golden Bow by James Fraser, where some of this stuff ultimately comes from. So, uh, Professor Gregg takes the boy into, into a room when he's having a fit, and does something mysterious to kind of sort him out. But uh, even though he comes out of the fit, Greg says to Lale, oh, he, I'm afraid he will never truly be cured. Oh, there's a nice scene then when the local rector visits. And uh, worth mentioning that Mackin himself was the son of a rector, who was the son of a rector, who was... So they were in a, a very well-established sort of Anglo-Catholic family. It looks to me like he was the maybe the first person in a very long time not to do so. He ran off to London as a young man to try and make his way as a writer and a, a newspaper writer. So the local rector, it says, Mr. Myrick was a member of an antique family of squires whose old manor house stood amongst the hills, some seven miles away, and thus rooted in the soil. The rector was a living store of all the old fading customs and lore of the country. I love that. So they have a chat about Welsh and the origins of the Welsh language and Craddock, which is the name of the the the, the strange-looking young fellow who was talking in tongues, uh, Mr. Myrick, the rector, says, "Oh, I don't think Craddock was speaking Welsh. I think he must have been speaking the language of the fairies," which I think is one of the only direct references we get to overt references, at least, to this mysterious like subhuman race and the the, the fairies of Celtic mythology. Now the the overall idea of like a little people living alongside us under the ground stealing people occasionally yes that of course makes you think of celtic fairy lore but this i think is the only time when that connection is made explicit anyway shortly after this the professor mysteriously disappears but he leaves lally a note and this is how the story finishes is basically what he writes to her in this note so he gives us the old sort of Victorian canard that oh I think much of folklore is a sort of a remembrance of something real and all this crazy mythological stuff from folklore must be based on something that actually happened at some point and he then he makes the reference to Celtic fairy lore in particular I have to contradict myself here because he uh, yeah he does he goes into a little bit more here so uh, I'm making that direct connection so he says in the older tales the stories that used to make men cross themselves as they sat around the burning logs we tread a different stage. I saw a widely opposed spirit in certain histories of children and of men and women who vanished strangely from the earth. They would be seen by a peasant in the fields walking towards some green and rounded hillock and seen no more on earth. And there are stories of mothers who have left a child quietly sleeping with the cottage door rudely barred with a piece of wood and have returned not to find the plump and rosy little Saxon, but a thin and wizened creature with sallow skin and black piercing eyes, the child of another race. Interesting here how he uh, points out that the uh, original child was Saxon. I'm not sure what he means by that. But this is clearly a reference to the changeling story, which is the idea that the little people would come and take your child and replace him with one of their own. He also says, Supposing these traditions to be true, who were the demons who are reported to have attended the Sabbath? I need not say that I laid aside what I may call the supernatural hypothesis of the Middle Ages, 
and came to the conclusion that fairies and devils were of one and the same race and origin. Invention, no doubt, of the gothic fancy of old days had done much in the way of exaggeration and distortion. Yet I firmly believe that beneath all this imagery there was a black background of truth. Rather directly uh, taking on the ideas that would later be done by Margaret Murray here. He calls this uh, purported race a race fallen out of the grand march of evolution. Which is interesting. Very interesting. So uh, evolution obviously as this big traumatic event to the Victorian psyche but also contained within it the germ of kind of how they would turn it around and rescue their ego if you like which is the idea of well okay we are not the only important thing out there but we are the most developed and evolution has put us at the head of the chain so they would often try and frame their monsters if they were doing it if they were framing monsters within a sort of real life evolutionary framework they would tend to emphasize you know who is on top and who is below so the idea that this race like the evolution was supposed to be leading up to uh, us at the apex and that these things are degenerate because they have somehow fallen off this scale this grand march would have been very important i think to the victorian psyche he comes across a report of a missing girl uh, out in the welsh hills or the border hills which makes him wonder if this ancient people this mystery people perhaps still exist and uh, he gives us some wonderfully victorian prehistoric comparisons here he says it was as if one of my confreres of physical science roaming in a quiet english wood had been suddenly stricken aghast by the presence of the slimy and loathsome terror of the ichthyosaurus the original of the stories of the awful worms killed by valorous knights or had seen the sun darkened by the pterodactyl the dragon of tradition so he's going whole hog here into the idea that everything from mythology must have been real so Dragons were based on memories of pterodactyls and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the the awful worms killed by knights are a memory of ichthyosaurs, which is brilliant. The sort of thing that would later be taken up by uh, the sort of crank creationist Christians who got involved in cryptozoology, unfortunately. So, yeah, this this idea went off to some pretty bad places also the timeline there is completely wacky but let's not even go there he finds another case of a, a mysterious killing of a man out on the wild borderland and after the guy was found dead he was found alongside a primitive stone axe which was so big and heavy that no human not even the local axe expert guy was able to wield it and uh, we get the strange sentence that for 4,000 years, no living human could possibly have used such a thing. It kind of sounds to me like a difficult difficult thing to say, but there you go. Uh, something about the axe tells him that, you know, no, but nobody made this recently, or nobody, nobody we think of as being on the surface of the earth in this day and age could possibly have used such a thing. He also comes across a mysterious hexagonal black seal, which is sent to him by a correspondent in, quote, the East, uh, that that nebulous and oriental place that existed largely in the imagination of Victorian writers. This black seal, which is a small rock ornament, was supposedly found at ancient Babylon, and it had a pattern on it which is related to cuneiform, which is of course the ancient uh, writing uh, device, writing style, which shows up all the time in modern stories about ancient aliens. And I'm thinking even, even as late as 
like 2009 in the film The Fourth Kind, where they imply that ancient aliens somehow gifted us with, with our various elements of culture. And I mean, that goes back to Von Daniken and all of that sort of thing, but they, they specifically focus on cuneiform in that film, I think because it's one of the o- oldest forms of writing known. So when people are telling stories about, well, maybe we learned what we did from some older prehistoric you know, group of beings, whether they be fairies or, you know, non-human races or aliens, you know, go back to the oldest things we know about from quote-unquote civilization and and suggest that those came from something even older. And again, we're getting into the idea of deep time being very a very scary concept to the Victorians and to, uh, to creationists today, it must be said. He also has the picture of the carving in the Grey Hills. So he's ma- he makes a leap that says, wow, we've got this this ancient symbol from 4,000 years ago and it's exactly the same as something that was seen carved into the rock just 15 years ago. He finds a similar example of the seal in a Northern England museum, doesn't specify where, and it allows him to compare the, black se- the marks on the black seal that he has to regular cuneiform. So something of a Rosetta Stone here, so he's now able to translate what's written on the black seal and he has a he has a fairly typical pre-Lovecraftian reaction to the translation. If you've read any Lovecraft, you should know what to expect. Uh, again, I just... There are so many things that are similar between the two and it doesn't mean that Lovecraft took all of his ideas from Mackin, but there are a lot of similarities, it must be said. So upon doing the translation, Professor Gregg says... But at last, the secret stood open before me in plain English, and I read the key of the awful transmutation of the hills. The last word was hardly written, when, with fingers all trembling and unsteady, I tore the scrap of paper into the minutest fragments, and saw them flame and blacken in the red hollow of the fire. And then I crushed the grey films that remained into finest powder. Never since have I written those words. Never will I write the phrases which tell how man can be reduced to the slime from which he came and be forced to put on the flesh of the reptile and the snake. So, like Minnie's a Lovecraft protagonist, he is horrified by learning that, you know, us humans are perhaps not that different from other similar non-human things out there, and, you know, if we went up the ladder of evolution, maybe we could come down again. Which is, is not how evolution works at all, but that's neither here nor there. It was certainly a Victorian preoccupation in weird fiction at this time. I also like the idea that, you know, we're only barely holding on to our place at at the top of the tree and, you know, we could very easily topple and become... You know, we could be, (laughs) next thing you know, we're wearing animal skins and uh, worshipping snake gods and, uh, you know, everything. We could lose everything in just a moment. So he realises with all of this that... The, the boy Craddock must have the blood of the little people going through his veins because he, he learns that Craddock was born to a mother who had that mysterious encounter out in the wilds and that she must have uh, conceived him through a, some sort of fairy father, so to speak. And then we get the climax of the story. So Craddock is having that fit where he was taken into the back room and uh, Lally didn't know what was happening, but now we learn that while he was having his fit in the back room, The professor writes, Yet the sight I had to witness was horrible, almost beyond the power of human conception and the most fearful fantasy. 
Something pushed out from the body there on the floor and stretched forth a slimy, wavering tentacle across the room, grasped the bust upon the cupboard, and laid it down on my desk. Wow, so yeah, that's really out there. And again, I'm saying it a lot, but kind of proto-Lovecraftian. I mean, it's a tentacle, for crying out loud. Incidentally, I left out a little bit. There had been a mystery to Lally as to how this bust, I think it's a bust of Pliny, uh, Pliny maybe, who, which had been up on this high shelf and then was later on, like, down on the scientist's desk and she couldn't understand how any human could possibly reach it because it was up so high. And now we learn that, well, the tentacle did it. <laughs> which just makes me wonder, like, what is this race that on the one hand we're being led to think is some sort of proto-human, some sort of hominoid, but now it's able to manifest tentacles? I mean, he's vague. He's vague about where the tentacle is coming from. Is it even a physical tentacle? Or is it, you know, like protoplasm? Is it more of a, is it more of a spiritualistic thing? Like, who are these people? Finally, Greg announces that he is going off to meet his fate and that she shall probably, in all likelihood, never see him again. He says, I shall meet the little people face to face. I have the black seal and the knowledge of its secrets to help me. And he wanders off into the grey hills to meet his fate. Sure enough, the professor disappears. Uh, Lally goes searching for him on the hillside but only finds a little container with his various bits and pieces, including the black seal itself. It turns out, once there's a police inquiry, nobody wants to hear what she has to say, nobody wants to see the bits of evidence she has, and nobody wants to listen to her crazy story. They instead decide that the professor must have gone rambling and fallen off a cliff into a body of water. She briefly returns to the issue of her missing brother while talking to uh, our boy, the scientist skeptic Mr. Phillips, back in Leicester Square. And then things wrap up with a rather wistful note so we get this little paragraph. Before Mr. Phillips had recovered from his amazement at this abrupt departure, Miss Lally had disappeared from his gaze, passing into the crowd that now thronged the approaches to the Empire. He walked home in a pensive frame of mind and drank too much tea. At ten o'clock he had made his third brew and had sketched out the outlines of a little work to be called Protoplasmic Rever Reversion. And that brings us to the end of the novel of The Black Seal. As I said at the top, I'm only starting to learn about the world and the life and the work of Arthur Macken. Um, if anyone out there is more of an expert on him and would like to send in a few bits and pieces of information, I'd be uh, extremely excited to be pointed in some good directions. I will keep reading the rest of this book and some others, and I might have more to say about him um, as we go. But for now, I'd like to leave us with uh, just my thoughts that I was genuinely surprised how much of what he says in this book feeds directly into Margaret Murray. I was also surprised how much this tracks with Lovecraft's general style and some of his preoccupations as well, in some, to me, what felt like uh, startlingly specific ways. So always excited to learn more about the history of weird fiction and the connections between these various writers. I do love a bit of Victoriana. As I said at the top, I do love some of the weird pseudo-scientific theories and pseudo-archaeological ideas that were going around at this time. Um, and uh, I don't mean to be snarky about any of it. I genuinely really enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to getting stuck into some more Arthur Macken once again in the future. 
If you've enjoyed listening to us, you can reach out on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland on Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird as we come towards the end of, or the second half, really, of our October sort of weird fiction fest. We have a few more interesting things coming up and at the end of the month ought to be, oh, we have ought to be climaxing with an episode about the Borley Rectory story and uh, yeah, launching our Patreon finally with a bonus episode on that day. That'll be off topic. Our bonus episodes will come out once a week. That's the plan anyway. And uh, Patreons will get uh, myself talking with one of my colleagues about something that is not monsters, ghosts, weird fiction. It'll be something different. It might be music, it might be movies, it might be wrestling, it might be something really, really different. Stuff we've done bits and pieces of uh, over the last couple of years, but as of now, the the main product is is strictly in the sort of weirdness vein. Why do people believe weird things? And then the bonus episodes will be a little bit out there. So hopefully um, that will all work as planned. You never know. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.